Welcome to the Angel Investors Network podcast. Angel Investors Network is the first national angel group founded online in 1997, dedicated to perpetuating free enterprise, capitalism, and supporting the American dream. In addition, Angel Investors Network is the organization behind the powerful Mastermind Investment Club, dedicated to harnessing the philosophy of a mastermind to increase success and their investment portfolio. Jeff Barnes is the COO and CMO at Angel Investors Network. Jeff is a two-time international best-selling author who helps entrepreneurs and leaders start, scale, and exit their businesses while creating freedom and autonomy along the way. On the podcast, Jeff brings together the most successful privately held companies in America to share with you how they grow their businesses and how you can too. And now, here's your host, Jeff Barnes. All right, welcome everyone. This is Jeff Barnes with Angel Investors Network, and thank you so much for being here today. I can't wait to dive into today's podcast with uh, a dear guest here on this show, I cannot tell you how impactful some of his work has been in my career and the contributions he's made to millions of people, actually, through the businesses that he's been involved with and helped grow, and we're going to talk a lot about that. The guest that I'm talking about and referring to today is Mitch Rousseau. Now, Mitch was, I'll let him explain his beginnings as a rock, rock band. I don't know if he was in, if he was the lead singer on that one, but did some incredible things with that. Went on to get a career in business, working with the uh, giants of business industry, Tony Robbins, Chet Holmes, and on and on. Has been a mentor to incredible individuals as a CEO advisor. Has written a couple of best-selling books, including one, The Invisible Organization, which I strongly encourage you to pick up and read. I've read through that myself. And we're going to be mentioning another book that Mitch is an um, author today as well. And if you get a chance to hear about that. And Mitch is also the uh, host of the podcast, Your First 1,000 Clients. And I hope I got all that right, Mitch. I apologize for the little faux pas there. But Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. And yes, you got most of it right. The name of the podcast is Your First 1,000 Clients. Perfect. No numbers, all words. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this interview, Mitch. And again, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you, guys, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone how you went from your, your beginnings of being an aspiring rock star to really working with the rock star of the self-help and personal improvement space, Tony Robbins. How did that what did that transition look like or how did that take place from beginning to end? Well, geez, that, that's a long story. And it, wasn't, <laughs> it certainly isn't one step, but, uh, but mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you know, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I, um, I wasn't a very social guy. I, uh, my, my preferred subject in school was science. So you could say I was a nerd. Uh, wasn't that popular with the girls. I, I never participated much in the sports side of school. So I stayed to myself a lot. And, uh, but I, Geez, I tell you, I was so envious of these jocks that were getting all the pretty girls for dates. So I figured, how can I get dates? I said, well, the best way to do that, I think, is to have a band. I think you can pick up more girls if you're a guitar player, right? And so with that idea in mind, um, you know, I spent three, almost four years learning to play the guitar and uh, got a bunch of guys together, a bunch of friends and we started jamming in my basement and um, we had a lot of fun doing it, but it turns out that we really weren't very good, you know? So uh, I figured we were never going to go anywhere uh, unless we, unless we figured out how to get better at playing the songs that we had decided to play. So 
And the other problem is, is that, you know, this is the 1960s and we're high school kids. And so what did we do? We like to get stoned. You know, we like to smoke pot. Well, it turns out that you can't smoke pot and practice music at the same time. So <laughs> the first thing we had to do was come up with a new rule that said, no getting high during band practice. And if we ever get a gig, no getting high on a gig. We agreed to that. And at that point, um, we started getting together for band practice and we were getting better and better and better. We started to record our band practice and play it back and see where we were making mistakes and correct them. And then uh, it turns out that there was this thing back then. They don't think they have it anymore. It used to be called Battle of the Bands. Mm-hmm. You, you ever heard of Battle of the Bands? I, I, I'm intimately familiar with it. My brother actually participated in a few years. Oh, okay. So we used to go to the high school auditoriums on a Saturday night with six or eight other rock bands, and we would vie for the attention of our audience by the loudness of the clapping determined the winner. And so what we figured out is that the more we practiced and the better we got at the songs, the closer we got to being the number one rock band. Imagine Um, that, right? (laughs) Imagine that, right? So, so uh, anyway, it turns out that we, we had a lot of fun doing it and we focused in on the stuff that we did really, really well. And we started to get gigs and the first gig we got was very difficult because the name of the band was absolutely free. So the high school mom who wanted to hire us for her daughter's Sweet 16 thought that was the price. And no, that was the name of the band that we were charging, you know, a grand total of $50 for the night. <laughs> so we had to convince her that we were worth $50. So we did that. And then we played that gig and everybody loved it. And we got more people to come by and want to hire us. So we started to raise our price slowly and we kept raising our price over the course of that year. We eventually were charging 500 a night and got to the point where we were making more money on an, and remember now this is in the 1960s. So $500 (laughs) was a lot of money back then. Sure. Anyway, what happened is after each gig, we would, um, I would pull out a, a, a clipboard and a pencil and I'd get a testimonial from the moms. And I would then use those testimonials, put them in a, in a loose leaf fi- uh, folder, and I would show them to other prospective moms who wanted to hire us. And with this kept going and going. We had quite a nice uh, group of testimonials. And then we were hired by a college to play a sorority band, a sorority event, And what I did without even thinking it was a big deal is I just sent notice of us playing to the local newspaper and they printed exactly what I sent them word for word. So all of these things became lessons to me on how to run a company. So lesson one was be disciplined with yourself and your team, even if they don't like it. In the end, it will pay off big time and the team will respect you for it. That came from just figuring out that you can't play stoned. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so lesson two was don't deliver a substandard product. Lesson three was focus. I mean, if we didn't focus on playing what we loved, we weren't going to get any work. Lesson four was honestly assess your true worth and then begin with pricing experiments. And that's how we got to $500. Lesson five is get testimonials for every service you deliver. Lesson six was spread the word. It just basically taught me the fundamentals of PR. 
And that became later a key element of why we were successful with the software company. And lesson seven, this is the best lesson, have fun. Mm-hmm. Because after all, if you can't have fun doing what you do every day, it's, it's going to be a long day. And by the way, it turned out to be the greatest uh, uh, way ever to pick up girls. Oh, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. So, you know, lesson eight, you know, start with the end in mind, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, very cool. Yeah, and I, I love that you tie that all back together because, you know, I was writing some of those things down as well. And um, I love that you said, you know, very, you know, step number one, don't get high on your own supply while you're there, you know, practice band, right? You so, you know, when, uh, when I'm working with, with clients and, you know, business owners and entrepreneurs, it's that discipline is so in, in important, right? In the structuring of what it is you're trying to do and achieve, you know, if you structure it right and you're disciplined enough to stick with it, eventually you will see that success. So, you know, lots of, lots of corollaries there to business. So absolutely, you mentioned running a software company and I, I mentioned you, you, you're working with Tony Robbins. So what made you give up music, you know, life of being a rock star and getting all the girls to, Hey, you know what? I want to be in business. Well, what it came down to was, you know, I got to tell you what drove me most of my high school years was this belief that I could be a rock and roll star. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? You got to believe in something. Um, but after, this experience with the rock band, which made me feel even more so that I could be in the music business. I made a discovery that changed everything. And this discovery led me into business. So the discovery was this, I actually have no musical talent whatsoever. (laughs) I'm a smart guy. I know I can duplicate another song and play it, but I actually have no true musical talent. So having realized that, having met some people who did and realized I was not one of them, it really freed me up to move in the, in a, in the direction that I was meant to go. And, and so when I thought about what, you know, I assessed my value and said, well, what am I good at? Well, I'm really good at selling. I'm really good at getting people to, you know, pay attention to what I'm doing. And, and I, and I love uh, entrepreneurship and I love commerce. I had lots of little businesses as a kid. I washed cars. I sold things door to door. So I wanted to do more of that. And, and yet at the same time, I had this love of electronics uh, and electrical engineering. And I, and I went to school for that. Um, so I knew I was headed in that direction. I just didn't know how it was going to turn out. So I got a job um, basically as a um, field engineer for a semiconductor company where I went and visited companies all over the country to help them with their microprocessor design and programming, because I was kind of an expert in that area at the time. And it was there that I made this discovery that the guys who brought me into these accounts, the salesmen were making triple what I was making. I mean, I was doing well, I was an engineer, but these dumb sales guys who did nothing but drink their lunch were making three times what I was. And that was some of the worst ones. So I made up my mind and I thought, I looked at these guys and said, you know something, I could do everything they can do. And I have an edge. I'm an engineer. I could actually get right into the engineering labs where they're not even allowed to go. So I decided to switch gears and I decided to, to leave the world of electrical engineering behind and go into sales. And it was there that I had enormous success. I was, um, uh, I took a job uh, as a salesman. And the way I got that job is a little funny because I actually went to the head of 
the sales um, division of our company. And I went to him and I said, look, I want to let you know that um, I would really like to work for you. I think I can be as good as anybody you have and maybe even better. And this guy, he looked at me with this smug, disgusting, superficial smile. And he said to me, Mitch, I got to tell you, great salespeople are born and you're not one of them. And I looked at him and I could feel the steam coming out of my ears when he said that to me. And I had three words go through my mind when he said those things to me. I, in my mind, the three words were, I'll show you. <laughs> A little bit nicer than the three words I might have said. Uh, well, I had other words too, but those were the three words that burned an impression in my mind that I could not let go of for 10 years. And what I then did is I went to work for his competitor. And I went and I literally um, went into every one of those clients that he had and I sold them our products instead. And uh, my little company, we ended up being the largest uh, selling the per person rep firm in the entire area. And I was number two in the entire state when it came to selling. So I knew I was good at it. And I started to do something which I never dreamed I was going to be able to do. I started making about $34,000 a month in commissions. And I was only 27, 26, 27 years old. And remember now, this goes back to the 1970s. Mm -hmm. $34,000 a month was like crazy money back then. Yeah, I was so unsophisticated financially. The only thing I knew is that if I put it in the bank, it was insured up to $100,000 by the FDIC. So I started opening up bank accounts one after the other, and I'd fill up an account with $100,000, and I'd throw the passbook into my sock drawer, and I, next time I got $100,000, I'd, I'd go to another bank, and I'd fill that one up with $100,000 in cash, and I'd throw that you know, a passbook into my sock drawer. Before long, I, I don't really remember how many passbooks I had. I'm not sure, even sure I kept track of them all, although now I know I did. But at, there was a point in time where I wasn't sure if I even had them all. And um, at that point, one of the things that changed the direction of my life was that I went from generating 34000 in commission down to about 2000 a month in commission. Hmm. All of a sudden, what we had was we had a downturn in the semiconductor industry. So I panicked and I went to some of the top people in the industry. I said, what the heck is going on here? And one guy, older guy says to me, Mitch, don't worry about it. The semiconductor industry is cyclical. We're in, we're in uh, right now we're in a downturn, but it's going to turn around really soon. Three, four years from now, it's going to turn right around. And I said to myself, what? Three, four years? What are you crazy? I'm not waiting that long. I'm out of here. <laughs> And that was the moment in time that I decided that I was going to start a business. Now, the universe knows when you have a strong attention, intention. And the universe knew for sure that Mitch Russo was ready to be in business because at that point, five business opportunities presented themselves to me in, in about a 35, 40-day time frame. And I couldn't figure out which to take, so I decided to start all five of them. <laughs> and play them out and see exactly what which one was going to catch fire. And some of them are kind of funny stories about one or two of the ones that I started. I'll tell you the funniest one of all is um, I remember now I was a semiconductor sales rep. So I would go into, into companies 
and I would meet with the vice president of manufacturing, the vice president of engineering and purchasing. And I met, I became friendly with a guy who uh, was the vice president of manufacturing of a modem company. They used a lot of our chips and he, he confided in me just after I made this decision and said, you know, um, I just want to let you know I'm going to be leaving the company. I'm starting my own thing. I said, really, what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, I've been manufacturing in Europe, in Asia now for the last uh, six years. And I really learned a lot about Asian manufacturing and they have incredible products out there that we could sell here in the States, but they don't have a way of selling them in the States. So I interrupted. I said, you mean like starting up a rep firm and creating a sales team and then uh, taking that nationwide and, and offering the products and sourcing them from China here? Uh, and, or from in Taiwan here? And he goes, yeah. I said, you want a partner? And he said, you kidding? You're going to do that with me? I said, love to. So we built a partnership. We both put $5,000 into a bank account and we signed a contract with lawyers and everything. And we became partners. And now the first step in our partnership is he's going to take me to Asia and show me around and introduce me to many of the, the, the companies that he's talking about sourcing. And I said, wow, this is going to be exciting. I can't wait to go. We're doing our research. He's showing me stuff all the time. We're talking day and night. We're having breakfasts and dinners. And so one Sunday morning, about 8.30 in the morning, I get a phone call and it's him. And I, he says to me, Mitch, Mitch, you got to come meet me at the Woburn Holiday Inn. Uh, I want to introduce you to somebody very important. I said, great. Tell me about this. I, I can't wait. So I jump in my car, I drive 45 minutes. I meet him at the hotel I, and I go into the restaurant. And there I see him in the back of the restaurant, but I'm confused because he's sitting with what looks like like a prostitute, you know, you could tell. By the <laughs> so, sure. so I'm thinking, Oh my God, uh, who is that? And who, what is that? My, is that my partner or not? So it turns out as I walk over, um, it turns out that is my partner. And he is sitting with this woman who's really, really weird looking. And he stands up and gives me this big hug. Like he's really happy to see me. And he goes, Mitch, I want to introduce you to our new partner. Oh dear. <laughs> I said, What? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out that, that she is going to come with us to Asia and she is going to bring home furniture and she's going to open up a shop here on Route 9 in Southboro and she's going to sell furniture. And I said, wait a minute, what is your relationship with this woman? And he said, well, you know, we've kind of been friends for a long time. And I kind of realized what was going on here. He was cheating on his wife. And he, I met his wife and who's wonderful. I met his kids, which are amazing kids. And I said, you know something? This doesn't work for me. I'm out. So I walked away from that. I walked away from my investment. I walked away from that opportunity. And, you know, my, my gut was that that was not right for me. And I followed my gut and I'm glad I did. Absolutely. So it ended up happening. Thank you. What ended up happening is that this absolute crazy long shot of an opportunity turned out to be the one that became my, my, uh, my big business. I had a next door neighbor and he had just moved in and I went over to say hi to my new neighbor and we started talking and we started sharing experiences and stories. Turns out that he's a programmer and he has five successful products on the market, all programmed on the Apple too. So it turns out that we just kept being friends and chatting and we went to breakfast a few times and I shared with him my idea of a software program based on a problem I was having. And 
he took out a pencil and started sketching out on a napkin what the interface would look like for the software that I've been describing. And, um, you know, talk is cheap. And I said, hey, that'd be great. If you want to build this thing, we could probably sell a couple of these things. And, and he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. And I left it at that. Six weeks later, he calls me up, brings me, uh, says, come on over. I want to show you something. And um, I go over to his house. And there on his screen on the Apple II is a quick prototype of what we were talking about. And I got really excited. And so I, I said to him, well, look, I know you know how to do this on the Apple II, but this has to be on that new computer called the IBM PC. Can you do it on that? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, I mean, you're a programmer. You can probably learn how to program on a PC, couldn't you? Go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's no big deal. <laughs> so, so the two of us put $5,000 into an account together. We signed some papers, became partners, and we spent um, – I think it was 4,000 of our $10,000 on an IBM PC. And, and he got to work learning to program on the IBM PC. And it was like almost six weeks later, he calls me up. He says, come on over. I want to show you some, some cool stuff I'm doing here. And I said, great. So I go over there and he sits me down in front of a, a keyboard and a screen, nothing on the screen at all. And he says, watch this. And he takes his finger and he touches a key on the keyboard and it shows up on the screen. I said, uh, yeah. He goes, I programmed that. I said to myself, oh my God, this is going to be a long road. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that that was the very first thing he ever did on a PC. But. <laughs> Programming. And that's, that's probably hard to fathom for people that, you know, now we have the phones that can listen to our voice and open up apps and order pizza at the same time, right? Exactly. Uh, but exactly. being able to go from, you know, a keyboard to a graphical user interface, you know, right around the time that, you know, people were getting rid of their punch cards, right? You got it. Well, a little bit later than that, it was, it was, it was basically 1985 and mm-hmm. it was 84 to 85, the time of the emergence of the PC industry. I'm watching this guy named uh, Bill Gates who uh, started to sell this software called DOS. And I thought to myself, this is the beginning of something really big and I want to be in on this. And it means you got to be in the PC industry. Mm-hmm. Now, meanwhile, I was still selling semiconductors, um, but I knew that the end was near. I knew I wasn't going to be around long because of this downturn thing I told you about. So I waited and waited for um, Neil to figure out how to program on the PC. And luckily he was a very fast, very excellent student. And before long, he was churning out some amazing code. And so both of us quit our, our day jobs, quit our gigs. And we had built a product that, and the design of the product was it was going to keep track of time so that people can deduct their computers from their tax return. So the name of the program was tax kick. And um, we thought we had a great product and it was going to really take over the market because nobody had any software that would allow them to run it on their PC so that it would prove to the IRS that this PC was really a business tool. Well, we, we spent all this time, six months building the product, documenting the product, testing the product, spent all kinds of money printing manuals. And the day we quit our jobs, I find out that the IRS had relaxed their rulings on record keeping and made our product completely obsolete. 
<laughs> so now we're sitting there and we're trying to figure out what the heck do we do now? Well, um, we sat there and we brainstormed and we brainstormed. What do we do? What do we do? And we came up with the idea of why don't we take this cool time tracking technology and build a system to keep track of time for service professional lawyers, accountants, etc. And that we went back to the drawing board and we spent another three months building this thing that became time slips and that became time slips corporation. And that is what became the business that changed our lives. That's awesome. So you just went through a lot of stuff, Mitch, and I, I want to unpack and I want to back up quite a ways actually. Mm-hmm. And you know, tell you the lessons that I heard in there and make sure our listeners get a chance to hear these as well. And then I'll let you continue on because I, that's an incredible story of you know perseverance and getting through that process. But there's a lot of things that I think are really important for people to understand. And the first, um, the, the first part of your story resonated with me because I was a nuclear trained mechanic in the Navy. I was a knuckle dragger in the back of the boat. Um, <laughs> our job was just to make sure that, you know, the lights stayed on, there was power, there was clean water, there was oxygen, things like that, you know, just the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we were never like the heroes of anything, I- I- even in any part of the, the military, right? We were just the mechanics, the ones that kind of kept things going. And I left that and went to the corporate America and I was an operations guy and I ended up running the largest division in our company. And, uh, largest region and managed the, you know, several dozen people at a time. And, but again, I was on the operation side and what I realized and I came to kind of, you know, be very distasteful of it was this whole thing that, you know, we're working 50, 60, 80 hours a week, traveling all over the country, all over the world, making sure the business is running, making sure all those commitments, the salespeople had made were being fulfilled upon our customers were staying happy but we were never really celebrated for that, right? It was always the salespeople. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote this in big, bold letters. Sales is greater than operations. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but in almost every business, that's, that's true to yep. a certain extent, right? Yep. The salespeople have to do their jobs in order for there to even be a business. You have to have a sales system. You have to have a marketing system, all of that for there to even be a business. Because if there's no one selling something, you don't have anything to do, right? Correct. Now, the corollary, of course, and you are very intimately familiar with this, I am, is that once you sell something, you have to fulfill it. You have to come make good on those promises, right? So the operations is pretty much on par, but in any business, anywhere you go, sales is the number people look at. That's the one that you know the CEOs and the owners and everybody is really going to focus on, right? Um, but, but I loved hearing that story. Uh, the other thing you said, and you were making a boatload of money in your mid-20s, and you did something, I thought you were going to say something completely different than what you did, but you said you actually put money away. You knew what the limits were on the FDIC. You're putting money away. You're you know, basically maxing out savings and checking accounts, which is really smart. Um, in hindsight, I'm sure you're really happy that you did that. Mm. But we work with a lot of entrepreneurs who are like, hey, you know what? I have a great idea. I'm ready to jump ship and go and quit my job and leave and go start this company and get to it, right? Because I'm going to make a million dollars my very first year. I'm going, to make, I'm going to make back my salary in six months, no problem. Uh, but what they, find, what they forget is that there's so many other things you need to do rather than just you're not working for somebody else for a paycheck anymore. You have to do everything when you start your own business. And so putting that money away for your transitional period, I tell people minimum 12 months. If you can't have 12 months of living expenses taken care of, if you leave the comfort of a job or wherever you're getting that, that paycheck from to go start a new venture, you're really putting yourself and your family at risk. Now, of course, that's why we see 
you know, all the, the teenagers and the 20 somethings that are still living in the basement with their parents starting companies because there's a lot less risk involved. But once you're an adult and you have actual responsibility, you have family, you have mortgage, you have kids, whatever, you, know, you really have to be, be mindful of that, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing you did is you said, okay, I, these, all these opportunities came to me, which like you said, when you are intentional about your actions, the universe will just open up doors for you. That, it, it's just magical how that happens when you want it to happen. I mean, it's just incredible how that works. And what you said, listen, I got five opportunities that came to me. Why not? I'll just go with all five. And that's because you had that, that safety, that security blanket, if you want to call it that, because you'd planned for it properly. Now, you didn't know necessarily where you're going, but you'd planned for it well in advance. And so now you had that opportunity. And so, you know, it's uh, what it, how's the saying go that, you know, good luck is the, the combination of good fortune and preparation or something like that, the crossroads of um, fortune, opportunity and, and preparation, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you had that. So you're able to take your, your money and spread it out across multiple opportunities, which is, of course, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But also the other piece that I find very um, insightful here is that you mitigated your risks, right? You, you did the right things. You did the legal structure the right way. You made sure that you had your doors open in other areas. You didn't just lock yourself in one area and, and put your back against the wall and say, this has to work. Because if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm up, a, up a creek. Instead, you spread yourself out. You looked at all the different opportunities. You mitigated your risks. So even though the one you thought was going to be the winner fell through, you still had something else to fall back on. And Mitch, first of all, I want to applaud you for doing that because that's, especially in your 20s or even early 30s, that's not something that's easy to figure out or think about. You think you got it all figured out right away. But second, to actually be willing to go through that process and stick with it and realize when you know, you're at the end of one road, it's time to make a change. And you, you made that transition. That's re- also really hard for people to do. So well yeah. done. I like hearing thank, that stuff. Thank you very much. And I have to tell you, <clears throat> there was a moment when I looked at my net worth and uh, the fact that my, uh, the industry I was in was basically collapsing. I thought to myself, you know, I could take a year off. I could travel through Europe. Uh, I could buy a fancy condo in Boston overlooking the Charles River, or I could start a business. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was like there was no question. It, it absolutely was going to be that I was going to start a business because I understood that the freedom, the ultimate freedom I truly wanted would only come from having a business. The other things would be gone a year later or less, and then I would be left with what? Not right. much. So for me, the idea of starting a business was absolutely perfectly in sync with who I was and what I wanted. And I decided to go forward with that. But but there were other options and I can't tell you it didn't cross my mind. Let's put it that way. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Right. I mean, especially when you're young and you have the money and you have the, the ability to pick up and go. I mean, who wouldn't think about that? But the fact is that you, you knew what your worth was. You mentioned that earlier. And you knew that your worth came from, you know, building something. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with those people that say, I want to backpack Europe or I want to go around the world and do all that. That's, that's fine. But you knew where your heart lie laid and you knew that you could create more value by diving into this, right? Correct. So, you know, again, I applaud you. It's great hearing those types of things. And I, I really want our listeners, especially those that are on that entrepreneurial journey to understand that, you know, no matter how rosy your glasses might be you're always going to run into these obstacles they're going to test you 
They're going to force you to think about what you've done, the decisions you've made. And if you don't have a fallback plan and you don't, you haven't planned strategically in, in advance, it's going to be very hard to make those transitions, right? Exactly. So very important to think about that stuff. Now, I do want to fast forward a little bit. Um, you know, you, you started a software company, you were, you, you saw the writing on the wall, software, computer coding, all this stuff is going to be big. I want to be along for the ride. And you went down that route. You started a company um, that, that led into, if I'm not mistaken, led into a, a partnership of some sort with Intuit, if, I'm, if I have that correct. That's right. And then you ended up somehow becoming a venture capitalist or working as a partner of a venture capital firm. Is that right? Well, yeah, I just want to clear up the, the order of things. So what ended up happening is I started this software company and we hit a nerve in the business. People were taking uh, notice of us and uh, they liked our product a lot. Lawyers liked it a lot. We were obsessed with customer service and, and, and uh, satisfaction, client satisfaction. So we were super attentive. There were times when, you know, we would read up on our CompuServe message board that there was a bug. <clears throat> Neil would, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, fix the bug, burn a new set of disks and put it into a FedEx envelope just for that one guy. So, I mean, we were obsessed with taking care of our customers and word spread that we were that way and people wanted to do business with us. But the thing that happened is that as we were growing, we attracted the attention of some of the big advertising uh, venues like California Lawyer Magazine, very big magazine, covers 40% of the lawyers in the U.S. And a guy named Chet Holmes came to call on me to sell me advertising. And I didn't know who he was. All I knew was that he was a pushy sales guy. And he just would not give up. I mean, this guy was so relentless trying to sell me advertising space until finally I said, oh, God. So it, he flew from California to Boston to take me to dinner. And then he constantly called me. I mean, this guy was all over his game. And, you know, I started to respect him. I started to really admire a guy who was just that willing to do whatever it took to make a sale. Um, because I felt like I was the same way, not to the extent that he did. I mean, I did, you know, my, the sale I made, I was selling software for $199 uh, a pop while well, he was selling advertising space for, you know, 10, 20, 30, $50,000. So there was a, a big difference in what we were selling. But what ended up happening is that um, this friendship developed. <clears throat> and this was a friendship that started back in the 1986 range. And that friendship evolved to the point where after I sold my company, we stayed friends, good friends, best of friends for years and years. And later he invited me to come help him with his company, which I did. And then as I did so, he uh, announced to me one day in a very confidential phone call, he said, look, I want you to let you know I've been pursuing this guy, Tony Robbins, for 17 years and finally got to the point where we're going to have a conversation and I'd like you to join me. I said, of course, love to. And so we began talking to Tony Robbins and in 2007, 2008, and we began coming up with, with, with a plan to merge our two companies to bring all of the intellectual property that Chet had developed um, and his team had developed uh, into, with Tony and, and merge that so that Tony Robbins and I and Chet would be partners. And so we built Business Breakthroughs International as a partnership between the three of us. We were out there 
and we in six weeks we fill the stadium in or an auditorium in Las Vegas, and we recorded fifty six hours of content, and we spent the next six months uh, taking that content and mastering it into classes and building workbooks, and we built a home study course called the Ultimate Business Mastery System. Which I have gone through, actually. <laughs> and, I, and you know what? I wouldn't doubt it if you filmed that 56 hours in two full days, right? Somehow no. with Tony Robbins managing to fill you know, 56 hours into a 48-hour time slot, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It turned out to be about four days, but yeah. Yeah. Just the intensity that you guys brought to that in, in that program. And I, I know, um, you know I've been in the space of info marketing and uh, in creating info products and training and things like that. And I will say business mastery you know, is one of those, I'd say – of the new era, uh, anyway, one of the biggest breakthroughs, if you will, in the home study business building uh, arena, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yep. It was a fantastic program. And what we then did is um, we ran radio ads and we started out maybe spending about $10,000 a month on radio. Um, and we would drive radio listeners to our virtual call center. We had salespeople sitting at home all over the country and we would sell them a seat in a webinar for back then it was $99. It eventually became $239 in that webinar. We would then sell them this $4,000 system called the UBMS ultimate business mastery system. Well, that became the beginnings uh, by the time Chet had passed away or just before at the peak of the company, we were generating over 25 million in revenue yearly from that program. Mm -hmm. And there was no signs of that slowing down, except the fact that, as you know, Chet got sick. When Chet got sick, really, we lost our spokesperson. As a result, we could no, no longer record radio ads. And eventually, the radio ads we had, as all radio ads eventually do, they stopped working. Right. So we were at a point where, I mean, had Chet not passed away, we would have been even bigger and probably would have sold that company for half a billion dollars. Sure. Yeah. And it's unfortunate too. And, you know, Chet Holmes, for those of you who don't know, and you haven't read it, you need to read the ultimate sales machine, just an in incredibly insightful book. And it sounds like Mitch, you were one of his dream 100. You got it. That's exactly <laughs> right. I was one of his dream 100. Correct. Yep. And for anybody who doesn't know that reference, you got to get Chet's book. You got to read through it. You got to understand that Mitch is actually mentioned in the book. He had played a very pivotal role in helping Chet and Tony get their organization off the ground. And, you know, what you've done with Tony or what you guys helped Tony, Tony Robbins accomplish and what you guys, what the three of you accomplished pretty incredible. And I know that that led into additional opportunities and, you know, it's really unfortunate about Chet passing away. He's just a brilliant man and had some incredible things to offer. I'm really glad that he took the time to put information into his book and get it out there in the world so that his legacy can live on. Um, I know that you're doing the same thing. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I really do want to find out how did that experience of starting a business with Tony Robbins, with Chet Holmes, how did that help you and prepare you for what you're doing now? Oh man, in countless ways. I mean, I learned so much from working with Tony and Chet directly that way. I mean, kind of felt like I knew my way around business before, but with the amount of time that we spent together and the amount of work that we did together, you know, there were lessons after lessons. I mentioned earlier that we were spending a lot of money on the radio. 
Well, it turns out that we were spending about a million dollars on the radio by the time I left. And I was the one doing all that spending because Chet didn't trust anybody but me to run those ads. So uh, I learned an enormous amount about how radio works and uh, what works on the radio and how to set up the right formula and combination of, of ads and spend and daytimes and, and time, all the different periods of time that you could run ads and learned about remnant radio and stacking and all the things about radio that really made us successful. And I learned them by doing it over and over again and spending all that money. And I would have never had that opportunity if it wasn't for Chet and Tony. Oh, I bet that that's incredible. You know what? There's a lot of people out there that probably think, oh, radio is a, a lost advertising medium and it's gone forever, just like direct mail. And, you know, we work a lot with companies and they seem to think all they need is more money. They just need to raise more capital. And really what they need is better marketing and advertising to get more sales in. And when we bring up these ideas of, well, why don't you try some of the stuff that's tried and true and tested, like radio, like direct mail, like things like that. They, they look at you like, you, you were born in the 1800s. You don't really know what you're talking about, but those media are just as viable today as they were when you were launching your business, which or, or building your business, which was a decade ago. That's right. And it turns out that radio still touches uh, almost 90% of the U.S. population every week. So radio is still a very significant vehicle. And keep in mind that every brand new car ships with a free subscription to Sirius XM. And uh, there's probably 30 million subscribers alone, and that is growing every month. So radio is very viable, and particularly if you know how to spend that money in an economical way and make it pay off, then it's priceless. Yeah, it truly is. So I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, in the interest of time, I know we're, we're running out of time here, but you know, you ended up working with a venture capital firm, and how did all of your experience kind of dovetail into working in the VC land and, and kind of what did you do there? Well, okay. So when I first sold Time Slips Corporation, uh, I thought that my, for heaven's sakes, I'm the perfect candidate for a VC to hire to run one of their portfolio companies. I mean, I had just finished up with a eight figure acquisition I did my earnout. I built a, I built a company. I merged three companies and divisions together. I mean, I had what I would think of was the absolute ideal resume. And you know something? I couldn't get a call back from any of them. And so what I came to realize after I finally literally drove over and knocked on the door and said, I got to ask you a question. I mean, I would be a perfect fit for what you're doing. And yet no one's called me back. How come? And the guy looked at me and he looked around like he was about to speak out of school. And he said, I got to tell you, Mitch, you're too old. I said, what do you mean I'm too old? He goes, well, you know, we're looking to hire, you know, 27-year-olds, you know, not 44-year-olds. <laughs> and I had this realization that 44 was, it was sort of like I was a, uh, you know, maybe a football player. You know, you get to be 44 and you, you really are too old. But in this case, I thought, boy, are you dumb. All of the experience that I have acquired is only going to make me more successful, not less. Yeah. And, and so I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to start my own venture firm. And so that's what I did. I, I Now, of course, I had a substantial amount of cash 
So I said, I'm going to start investing in companies on my own. And along the way, I picked up other investors. And, um, you know, we eventually invested in, in 21 startups. Um, and along the way, one venture company noticed what I was doing, came back to me and said, look, uh, we have a portfolio company we could sure use your help with. And I, um, I, I said, let me take a look. And it turns out, I'll, I'll skip the whole story, but it turns out that, you know, they wanted me to run the company as CEO. And I said to them, I said, well, look, I mean, I'm already doing this other thing here. You couldn't pay enough to get me to do that. And they said, well, what's the number? And I came up with this really ridiculous number. And they said, yes. <laughs> so I said, okay, back in the hot seat I go. And I'm going to be the CEO of this company in the furniture industry of all places. <laughs> So software and, and electronics and semiconductors to furniture, you know, it's, you know, but what, what the, the truth of the matter is that once you understand the tenets of running a business, you know, the, the gadget or the widget or the, the product, you know, you don't necessarily be, need to be the one that knows how to build the furniture to know how to sell it. Right. Or to scale a company around that. Exactly. And we were building an internet startup around the furniture business. So I already knew a lot about the industry other than the, the domain expertise itself, which I had partners for. Mm-hmm. So, so we built a, basically a web-based portal for marketing, for furniture stores to build their marketing programs with. And a guy basically wired, initially wired two and a half million into my account. Eventually we raised $8 million to, to build this thing. And we were going gangbusters. I mean, they would come, they'd love to come to our, uh, our board meetings because we, we always had such good news and so many good things happening. <laughs> but, you know, uh, then we hit the, the uh, year 2000, there was the internet, the dot-com bust. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of companies went out of business and it was a lot more than just internet companies that got that went bust turns out there was a major tectonic shift in the uh, furniture industry where uh, the buyers of furniture which were the large chain stores were beginning to source their furniture in asia and the american manufacturers thought that that would never happen Mm -hmm. so we got caught up in all of that we lost 35 percent of our customer base in a matter of 120 days. Wow. And so eventually um, we had to figure out how we were going to pivot this business uh, and not lose what we had already created. Uh, And then of course, to make matters worse, the VC firm that funded us got shut down by the, by the small business association for falsifying documents. So we got a phone call out of the blue that said, uh, Mitch, I got good news and bad news. Uh, good news is you won't have to worry about us bothering you anymore. Um, and, and I said, what are you talking about? He goes, we were just shut down by the, um, by the SP, uh, SPA. Uh, and I know you only have six weeks of cash left. So good luck with that. Jeez. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's never a dull moment when you're running a business, is it? Never, never. And, and, you know, and that brings up something really important. Um, if you are the type of person that needs stability, that needs the predictiveness of, of, of a job, then I got to tell you, running a business is just not going to work for you. I mean, we, we got it to a point where 
in, at time slips before we sold the company, we got to a point where, I mean, there was one particular moment I remember where we were having a bad sales month and some of our, um, our distributors uh, were not paying on time uh, and we needed to make payroll and didn't have cash. So my partner and I pulled out our credit cards and we ran about a dozen credit cards to the limit, maxed them out to make payroll. Mm. And if you can't do that, if you don't have the temperament for that kind of stuff, then being in business is not good for you. Oh, yeah. That, isn't that the truth, right? You look at those credit card statements, you're like, how in the world am I going to cover this? Or yep. you look at payroll and you wonder, okay, is it, do I max out my credit cards or do I let people go? Right. And either one of those yeah. are, are, are fun decisions to make, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, it's also having the having the entrepreneurial vision and confidence to know and believe in yourself and what you do. So for me and for my partner, uh, you know, I had absolutely no, uh, no problem at all uh, being able to be firm about exactly what I knew the future was for us and uh, gave us the confidence to go and max out those credit cards. Yep. And having that, um, that steadfast vision is so important. Exactly. You have that. If you can't see yourself in the future running a successful company like that, then you're right. You, it's not the place for you. And it, but you know, the, the corollary to that or the flip side, I should say is you can't complain about being in a job <laughs> if you're not willing to take the heat of running a business, right? Exactly. So you exactly. you got to take the good with the bad for sure. Well, uh, Mitch, I could go on for hours chatting with you. I absolutely love this. I love hearing your stories and all the things you've, you've accomplished. Um, but I know that people can go to learn more about you and you, you've written a book that I want you to tell people about and then tell them how they can find the book and then find out more about you. Sure. <clears throat> well, this is my second book. My first book, as you mentioned earlier, is called The Invisible Organization, mm -hmm. How Ingenious CEOs Are Creating Thriving Virtual Companies. And a guy named Jay Abraham wrote the forward to that book. Uh, I don't know if you know who Jay yep, is. Another marketing genius. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and a dear friend. So Jay was kind enough to write that for me and because he believed in the book a lot and he believed in the message. Uh, and he was responsible for the impetus to write that book. Uh, so that book became an uh, Amazon number one bestseller, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then now three years later, I just released my new book called Power Tribes. And Power Tribes is a book about a business model. It's a book about how anyone could turn their company into a selling machine using certification. Now, when I built Time Slips Corporation, we stumbled across this concept of certification, which was responsible for building uh, basically our third largest sales channel, decreasing our expenses uh, in the support division by 20% and creating some of the greatest relationships we had ever had. And it was because of that certified consultant program that we were able to rapidly expand the value of our company and sell it for as much as we did. So I had never told this story before and it was only a few years ago where a client asked me if I would guide them through the process of building certification. And once I realized that how much I really knew about this thing, I started to codify the process. 
I started to put together ways of teaching it and ways of taking people through it that would guarantee their, their results. And that has resulted in the book called Power Tribes. That's incredible. So just to clarify, when you're talking about this, you're talking about certifications for people who want to get your knowledge, who want to learn what it is you do and and be good at it, not necessarily certifying your internal sales team, correct? That's correct. The the proverbial you. So so if you look at, let's take an example of a company called Infusionsoft. Mm -hmm. Everyone here has heard of Infusionsoft. Well, Infusionsoft wasn't really very successful until they built their certification program. Then they exploded. The same actually with Intuit. Now, an interesting story about Intuit is that I was friends with the founder of Intuit, Intuit, Scott Cook. And Scott saw what I was doing with my Time Slip Certified Consultant Program and asked me if I would teach him how to do that. And um, as a result, I, I did. I gave him all of our materials. And as a friend, I was happy to share what I knew and my knowledge. Um, and he was kind enough to do something that he had never done for any other company. And he gave me the keys to the back door to QuickBooks. <laughs> so that we were able to link time slips directly into QuickBooks as a receivables module. Incredible. Yeah. So that turned out to be a fantastic relationship, a great friendship. And, um, and Scott turned out into the QuickBooks Certified Advisor Program which now has thousands of C- CPAs in that program. Yep. Absolutely incredible. So Mitch, well done. Just absolutely loved having you on the, on the call today on the podcast. Can't wait to chat with you again. It's been a great uh, pleasure. I want to, I would love to spend more time and just dive into even deeper into all the different experiences you have. Of course, in the interest of time, we do have to have to call it a day. Um, so again, it's Power Tribes, the name of the book, and how can they find the book? Is it just on Amazon, or do you have it on? Do you have a website for it? Well, yeah, I, I, it's on Amazon. But if you go to powertribesbook.com, you can not only buy the book from Amazon, but you can get a free course that accompanies the book by buying it from that site. Wonderful. So that and that's powertribesbook.com. Power, powertribesbook.com. Perfect. All right. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Mitch, uh, thank you again. Any last comments for our listeners today? Well, again, I just want to encourage everybody that to remember that this is a, this is the long game. When you're building a business, it, it took me two and a half years before I could pay myself a salary. Now, granted I had money in the bank. I had prepared for that, but by being able to not take a salary and my partner and I not pay ourselves from the business, we had all that extra money to, to pour into marketing. So do your homework in advance. Try to put together a nest egg if you can, and that will help propel you to success. Incredible. And very sage advice there as well. So Mitch Rousseau, thank you very much again for being on the Angel Investors Network podcast. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. And everybody out there, do what we do. Wake up every morning with an attitude of gratitude. Tell someone you love them and look forward to the future. Thank you very much. I'm Jeff Barnes, interviewing Mitch Rousseau here with uh, the Angel Investors Network podcast. Take care. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer.